afternoon, everyone. Fourth of July Sunday. This is a rare occurrence, and uh, I, I didn't know if it would just be the three of us today in Sunday school talking to ourselves, but we are so glad that you guys are here today. And uh, if you have a Bible, can we go, I think, First Corinthians, would that be a sure, good place? Let's, Let, let's start in First Corinthians chapter 1. As you're turning there, if you remember, we were in the chapter on election last Sunday. We did not finish that. And we're going to go ahead and jump ahead to chapter 19 and start with the gospel call chapter, which starts on page 295. If you have your book by Grudem, uh, the gospel call, 295. And Scott, can you pray for us? And then we will talk about uh, what this uh, effective or effectual call of God is. Okay, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful uh, for this time that we can gather here and even just open up your word and read your word together and uh, open up this Grudem book and, and learn from it. And Fathers, we examine sort of your uh, effectual calling uh, in our lives. Uh, I do pray that we'd come away humbled by it. Um, there's no room for pride when we consider this. Uh, it has nothing to do with us, but it was all uh, your grace. And so I pray that we would be humbled, but I do pray that uh, there would be genuine worship inside of us when we consider your effectual call. I mean, we were like Lazarus dead in the tomb, and, and you came and you called out our names, and, and we rose up uh, from our spiritual deadness, and uh, we should be filled with awe and wonder and praise as we consider this and as we consider uh, election. So give us wisdom as we talk about these things and uh, help us to be changed as we discuss your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And I want Greg in a minute to, to walk us through some of 1 Corinthians 1. Before we do that, let me just say an introductory word about the topic. So, I do think this is a vocabulary word that we as Christians need to recover from the Bible that we've often sort of lost. Uh, in the New Testament, one of Paul's favorite words to describe someone who has become a Christian is a person who has been called. And we often have changed, we've often used a, a different meaning of the word called. We often take the word called to mean something like, you know, the Lord has called me to, maybe you could say ministry, or the Lord has called me to a particular work, uh, the Lord has called me to a particular uh, job, something like that. And while I, I don't mean to say that that never is a thing, I just think in the New Testament, that is a very rare use of the word call if it is used at all. It may be used a couple times in 1 Corinthians 7, but outside of that, if it's even used there, it's debatable, but outside of that, the word call by Paul is used almost, if not always, to refer to God calling us from death to life in Christ. So it, it is a sovereign, saving, effective call from death to life. And Paul can just refer to Christians as those who have been called. That's what they are. And, and over and over and over in his letters, and we'll look at a number of these texts, Paul refers to Christians as those who are called. And so uh, we, we want to distinguish two kinds of call. Uh, the call. Another kind of call is like Jesus says, many are called. In Matthew, he says, many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. That is a different kind of call than the one Paul normally uses. That is called the general or external call of the gospel, this idea that when you ask someone to repent and believe, you are calling them to faith in Christ, but does that guarantee that the person listening will actually repent and believe? No, it does not. We certainly are responsible to call people to faith, but our call, the external call, does not guarantee that anyone responds to the call. But the inward call, the, the effective call of the gospel, always guarantees a positive response to the gospel. That's why Paul can refer to Christians as those who are called. So, Greg, can you pick up there with 1 Corinthians 1? 
Yeah, let's read in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 through 31. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll read verses 18 through 31. I think everybody's almost there, so I'll start reading. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart, or the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, something it's one of those things as you're studying and preparing for things, um, aspects of your own testimony, of your own life that you might not think about often can come back. Um, and as I was like thinking through this, it, it really hit me, um, you know, first Corinthians is actually not the passage we just read is not something Grudem actually spends time on, but it does relate to this chapter in some very significant ways. And my own like growth as a believer is wrapped up a lot in this particular passage in first Corinthians, uh, because, you know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I mean, we weren't like an anti-Christian, like, you know, Christ hating family. It's just, we didn't go to church a whole lot. Uh, we prayed before before dinner, but it was never like, or supper, sorry, if you're from the South, there's a difference between dinner and supper. Dinner is equivalent to lunch and you got supper. We prayed before supper. Um, anybody appreciate that? Okay, <laughs> sorry. Um, that, that's a big deal where I'm from. Um, so we'd pray before supper most of the time, uh, but I mean, we didn't go to church a lot. So I didn't grow up like speaking Christianese. I didn't understand what the, you know, anything other than like, maybe I knew what John three sixteen was. Um, and I knew, you know, I knew a few old Testament stories, so I didn't have a Bible background, um, you know, coming into this whole issue that we're discussing. It wasn't until in, in college, you know, I got saved right before I, I graduated high school, um, and, you know, came up to University of Georgia and everything around me was, was actually teaching contrary to what I'm teaching today. Okay. So it's not like I'm coming out at this issue personally from having been reared in a, in a more sovereignty of God tradition. In fact, everything around me, you know, even in high school, the church we started attending, uh, would never have, have affirmed this verse the way I think it's very clearly uh, should be affirmed. 
or this, this passage in this teaching. And so like, as I started studying the word of God, specifically somehow this passage in first Corinthians, I memorized this. It was in the NIV at the time. Um, like God started using this, this passage to shape the way I think. Um, and you know, throughout my college career, I, as I, as I studied this, became more and more convinced that God was sovereign in salvation, not man, that it was ultimately up to God, not to us, even though we still had to respond. The, we traced it back. God's the one we praise, not ourselves. Um, I was always kind of on the outskirts with this. Um, you know, I had people always trying to argue with me, and I wasn't trying to argue with them so much. You know, it's like we, we joke about people who become Calvinists going through a cage stage, and, and a lot of times it was the people who were not Calvinists who had cage stage rage against me for believing this. Um, got in a few heated debates with some people on it, um, tried not to, uh, but the more I studied the Bible, the more I could not come to any other conclusion. And the reason why I say that is I kept going to texts like this and I say, let's examine the text. Let's lay our presuppositions aside. Let's lay aside whatever previous assumptions we had and let's go to the text and let's let the text decide. And what I found almost all of the time is folks would hover over the text, but never get down in the text. They had their ideas about what the Bible could and could not say, and they would not actually let the Bible speak for itself. And so the reason why I wanted, to, I wanted us to look at this, um, we all wanted to look at this, is because the way Paul argues here in 1 Corinthians, I think is unmistakably clear. So let's look at it again. Look at verse 18. We're not going to do an, an in-depth on every verse, but try to hit the, the, the logic of, of what Paul's saying. The word of the cross, the message of the cross, the gospel, it's folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So for, for some people, the, those who Paul would say are the perishing or who are perishing, the gospel is foolish. It's folly. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. So there's two different ways you can view the gospel. Either it's folly or it's the power of God. Okay, but let's move on to verse 22. And he, he gets to this. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so here's what we have to, um, what we have to reckon with. If, if you're unsaved, unconverted, if you're not a believer, then in kind of two general categories, you're going to view the gospel of Jesus. It's either going to be a stumbling block or folly or both. In some, in some way, that's going to be your response. You're going to hear the gospel and you're going to say, well, I, I can't believe because of this, that, and the other. You're stumbling over that. Or you just say, man, that's ridiculous. I, I, don't, I don't want to believe that. That's dumb. That's stupid. It's foolish. Um, but... But verse 24, to those who are called something different, all of a sudden you either have seeing the gospel as a stumbling block or foolishness, or you see it as the power and wisdom of God. Okay. And so what is it that makes the difference between those two camps? What is it that makes the difference between those two camps? Verse 24, to those who are called. And that's why I think what Mark said starting off at the beginning is so important because um, if we just understand call in a general sense, just everybody, if everybody without distinction is or without any, any limitation is called in this way, 
then everybody would see the gospel as the power and wisdom of God. And we know from so many other scriptures that it is clear that not everybody responds this way. They don't see the gospel this way. So this can't be a call that is issued to everyone. Why? Because if you are called in this way, according to verse 24, you don't see the gospel as foolishness. You don't see the gospel as uh, folly or as a stumbling block. You see it as the wisdom and power of God. That's why in verse 21, Paul says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You believe in the gospel because you see it as the power of God. And so the question is, how do you come to believe that the gospel is God's power? God calls you. God calls you. That is the difference. And so this type of call cannot be a general call, but a very special call. And not only a special call, it's a call that actually brings about in us the very thing it's calling us to do. It gives the power and the desire and the will to do what we wouldn't do otherwise. And then down to verse 30, again, there's other scriptures I want to look at. He says, because of him, you are in Christ or by his doing, you are in Christ. That means the source of your faith in Christ. and against ideas. And, and what we're looking at considering right now, I've never heard it answered. I've never heard an answer that holds any weight up to what we just said. That to follow the logic, the clear reading and teaching of the text, God calls us. It is of him. Therefore, we believe because when God calls, we see Christ as the power of God. In verse 31, that way, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. We have no grounds for boasting when we stand before God. And we're not going to pat ourselves on the back and say, well, man, I'm sure glad I believed. I know God started it, but man, I'm so glad I did it. That's not how this works. Even the faith with which we called out to Christ is something that he himself created in us. What do y'all want to say in addition? Well, let me just read some again from 1 Corinthians 1 here. And in verse 26, uh, 26 to maybe 28. Nine, real quick. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And it just it reminded me of Jerry Bridges. Um, I mean, God chose to save the most unlikely candidates. That's what he's getting at, Paul's getting at. But Jerry Bridges would be an unlikely candidate. He was born in poverty. Uh, he had physical issues. He was half deaf in one ear. He was cross-eyed. He couldn't see well. And he, it took him a while to figure this out. He went out for baseball, and he got hit with a baseball. He couldn't. He had depth perception issues, but born in poverty. They didn't have running water. And yet God chose him. I mean, from 1 Corinthians 1, he just has these powerful words. He says, Amazing, isn't it, that the infinite God who created the entire universe merely by his spoken word would condescend to intervene in the life of a cross-eyed, half-deaf young man and open up to him a future he could never have dreamed of. But this is the way God often works. He sometimes chooses the weak and lowly to accomplish his purposes so that he may be glorified in their weakness. I mean, that's our story. I just feel like when we come to this, it's worship should come. There's no boasting for sure, but there should be worship come out of us. It's all that God did in us. So I mean, that should be an appropriate response here. Yeah, I mean, just applying this doctrine as we continue to work through this, you, you've got to apply this to yourself. 
this doctrine raises all kinds of questions, and usually there's initially objections like the same things you were talking through, Greg. Once we get past, I'm not saying we have an answer to every objection, but once you get past some of the immediate objections and immediate sort of, sometimes there's some emotion that comes with it, when, you, when, you get, when the Lord brings you through the initial resistance to this doctrine, on the other side of this doctrine, you have this astonishing truth, which is you look back on your past and you say, I cannot believe I'm a Christian. I cannot believe I'm a Christian, whether born in a Christian home or not. You look back on your conversion and you go, I was once obsessed with fill in the blank, right? It may have been something when you were a kid, you were obsessed with whatever, video games or parties or fun or your friends or whatever. Or maybe you were an adult and you were obsessed with your job or you're obsessed with career, you're obsessed with money, you're obsessed with whatever, popularity, fame, whatever it may be. And, and over time, your heart began to go from being completely bored and callous toward the gospel to suddenly there's some interest at least initial interest, like, I, I kind of want to go to church. I kind of want to read my Bible. I kind of want to talk about Jesus. And over time, suddenly you, you realize that the floodgates are opening, and suddenly there's a deep desire, like a profound desire for God, for Jesus, to talk about Him, to, to suddenly start praying for no given reason. You're just walking around, and you want to start praying to God. Suddenly the Bible, which was the dustiest book in your house, suddenly you're, you're brushing it off, and you're opening it up, and you're finding it is giving you life in the day. It's, in the morning, it is giving you life. It's reviving your soul. It's changing your day. It's changing your thinking. It's changing your emotions. It's changing your affections. There's a love for the Lord that is bubbling up. People around you start seeing something is going on with this person. This is not who they used to be. There, there's a change in them. And to stop after all all that and to look back once we get past all the initial objections to the doctrine and we see it as in the Bible and we humble ourselves before this, this mysterious teaching, we stop and say, what an astonishing thing that all that transformation is owing to the sovereign call of God on my dead, lifeless soul, not owing ultimately to something that I did, but ultimately owing to something that He did. That is when, I mean, tears will flow when you get that. When that sinks in, you'll I cannot believe that in the orphanage of the world where everyone was lost in sin and headed toward destruction, God walked into the orphanage and chose to adopt me, even though I was undeserving, anti-deserving, I was in rebellion against Him, I was not innocent like most orphans would be thought of, I was a rebellious one. God came in and He chose me out of the orphanage of the world and adopted me by sheer grace at the cost of His Son's life into His family. That is astonishing breathtaking stuff. And, and to, to allow this doctrine to get down deep, where it's not just something where you go, oh, I know some truth that my, you know, someone else doesn't know, and I, I'm superior because I know this truth, and a lot of people don't know this truth. No, 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 no. What, what Greg and Scott are saying, what the text is saying, is at the end of the story is verse 31, so it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This, this is meant to produce all glory to God and a complete humbling uh, of us as, as human beings. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Grudem has a, a good definition of this uh, on page. If you have your, your, uh, your book, a good definition on page 296, um, getting at this. And again, I think this is a good, a good summary. There's other ways you could probably word this, but I mean, at least for our purposes today, I think this will work. Uh, drawing from all the different texts we could look at, he says, effective or effectual calling is an act of God the Father speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel in which he summons people to himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. And that's why we say effectual or effective. It actually uh, does in us the thing it's calling us um, to do. It produces the response that it's calling. Um, and this actually is tied 
to the new covenant. We know Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, verses 31 through 34, when God is making a promise of a new covenant. And what does he promise to do in that text, but to write his law on the hearts of his people. And what is the result of that? He says, they will all know me. They will all know me because remember, Old Testament Israel was a mixed community. Okay, if you think want to compare Israel and the church, you know, Israel, you 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 might be a believer, you might not be a believer. That's the difference with the church. The church is what we call a regenerate community. It means it, you know, as best we're able, it's made up only of people who actually profess faith. It's not a mixed community of unbeliever and believer. It's a regenerate believers community. And so the, uh, the, the promise of the new covenant is I'm going to write my law on your heart. And so what does it do when God's law is written on your heart? It actually shapes how you think it shapes, how you feel it shapes what you desire. Because remember before in the old covenant, the law was external on tablets of stone and all it could do was put on an external pressure, but it couldn't do anything in here. The new covenant says what I'm going to write it on your heart. And by the writing of it on your heart, it's going to produce a change so that when God's word says, do this, you say, yes, that's exactly what I want to do. And so now with the new covenant coming, when God says you need to repent and believe God on the hearts of his elect writes, repent, believe. And what do we want to do? We want to repent and believe God does the work and we still willingly want to respond the way God calls us to respond. Does that make sense? Um, and so New Covenant is, is kind of in the backdrop of this. When we think about this, when, as Grudem says, he summons people in such a way that they respond in saving faith, meaning we actually repent and believe. Can I, can I jump yeah, in with the story here? Just a quick illustration. You were in the room for this, Scott. We were in the Schaefer's house. And uh, so we were in the basement of this friend's house. This is a long time ago, 10 years ago, maybe more. And we put in a DVD. This is before we would even stream a sermon. So we had a DVD of a John Piper sermon on the new birth. And uh, we put the DVD in and had this huge flat screen TV, massive television. And we're watching this sermon. And there was, I don't know, five, eight guys. I don't know how many guys were in the room. And, you know, some of us were genuine, I think, believers at the time. Some people in the room were were not believers at the time. We're kind of all just together. We'd been friends for a long time. So we're sitting there. And uh, Piper gets to a point in the sermon where he describes the new birth in these kinds of term, this kind of terminology, but he, he, he uses this illustration. I've used it a dozen times here, but just, he talks about how you, you once were excited about football and movies and all these other things. And suddenly what once looked like just complete boredom to you was suddenly life. And he said, everything else started to look like husks and ashes and you're saved. You, you come to know Christ. Well, right around that point in the sermon, a friend of ours, uh, just kind of, you know, we're probably like 20 years old or something. He puts his head down and he's holding his, his face and uh, he, he doesn't say anything. And he just kind of sits there like, like kind of covered, like a little strange, like covers his face and just kind of over in the corner of the room. And we finish the message, which is like 45 minutes long. And the sermon ends. He's still got his head buried in his hands. And this is a guy who up to this point, I don't think cared that much about Jesus. If I'm being honest, I think he would tell you the same thing. And so, like, I think probably for 15 minutes, he's holding his face. And we, we noticed that there's like, there's just tears spilling between his fingers. And he's just like this sitting there and his body sort of quietly, like sort of shaking, like he's, he's sobbing quietly in there. And we don't even know, you know, this is a bunch of 20 year old guys. Like what, what's going on over there? So we're just like, not sure what to do. And suddenly we were like, like, like snot coming. I mean, it's one of those, like it's full blown, ugly, sobbing, cry. ugly crying. Yeah. And uh, he puts his head up. And he just looks like he'd been run over by a truck. And, well, Scott, do you remember this story? Can you fill in any details here? What happened? Do you remember what happened? I mean, you can keep going. <laughs> keep going. You got it. But basically what he said was, is, 
like his eyes were open to, to like who Jesus was. And his life immediately in that moment, at that, like I can point to that second in that, that day at their house. From that moment, his life began to change immediately, visibly, outwardly, and obviously. So he, was, he used to drive a little white like Dodge truck, this little tiny white, I think it was a Ford Ranger. Ford, Ford Ranger, thank you, a little white Ford Ranger. And uh, he, he would come pulling into our house, and suddenly there's like sermons blaring, it's like full volume. I'm like, who are you? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> what is going on? And he's buying books, he's buying scroll books, he's buying study Bibles, and suddenly he's reading the Bible, and he's reading these great books, and he's listening to sermons when he's driving in his car. And I'll just tell you, he wasn't doing that to be a Pharisee. This guy wouldn't, you couldn't have paid him to drive around listening to a sermon before this. But suddenly he's, what happened? His desires had changed. And it was so evident and obvious to anybody around him. And I'll just tell you, not everybody in that room that day has had that change. Uh, So when you look back, what explains it? This guy was not looking to get converted that night. He was looking to hang out with his friends who basically forced him to watch a 45-minute sermon. He's like, I didn't sign up for this. And in the middle of the sermon, while the, 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 the new birth is being described and Jesus is being described, he just breaks. Just out of nowhere, no sign, no warning, he is converted. What happened? And the answer is, God chose through the external call of that sermon, right, the external call of the gospel, through the Spirit, used that external call to create the effective call. The Holy Spirit effectually opened his heart, opened his eyes, gave him a new heart, gave him regeneration, and suddenly he is overwhelmed by his sin. He's in love with the Savior, and that has continued since that day. Uh, I'm not saying he's, he's been perfect since that day. He has sinned like all of us have sinned since that day. But the, the new desire for the Lord has been a continual thing. And the answer is that happened because God called him to himself through the external call of the gospel. Yeah, a couple quick thing, just jumping off of that. Sproul says it like this. He says, it is not like the Holy Spirit drags people kicking and screaming against their will to come to Christ. But what the Holy Spirit does do is change the inclination and disposition of our hearts so that when we were previously unwilling to embrace Christ, now we are willing, more than willing. Indeed, we run to Christ and embrace him joyfully because the Spirit has changed our hearts. It's just, we can't get enough. We just come, we can't help. We want to embrace Christ. The joy is overwhelming. That's, that's what you're describing there. I mean, he was so changed. I remember him texting me about the sermon the next week. I was like, what is going on? He never asked about the sermon. He was even tipping graciously that night. He had made fun of you for tipping. Wait, tell like, that part. I mean, he had t- Mark had said oh, something don't, about... Oh, don't, don't compliment me in the story. Sorry. <laughs> Just tell the part about what he said about tipping. <clears throat> yeah, he had said something about you shouldn't tip, like, if the service isn't great or something like that. And I think you'd push back the week before against him or whatever. But then that night... Like he tipped his, his huge tip, unusual tip, and he even <laughs> grabbed you and said, like, God bless you or something like that. He just, you could see the change was, was immediate and clear. But I, going back to what you were saying, the, the sermon, it's like the, the call, the outward call of the gospel is so important in that. Like, pipe the message. The gospel has to be clear. And it, it reminded me of uh, D.L. Moody's conversion, who Moody was, was a mess, and he went to live with his uncle. But his uncle made the, the deal that you could live with me, but you got to go to church with me. So he, t- he took him to church and took him to Sunday school. And there, his Sunday school teacher was Edward Kimball, I think was his name. And he could see the 17-year-old who Moody just didn't care at all about Christ and all that. And he, he was watching. You could tell if you're teaching, this guy's not into the, the gospel. And so over time, he had a burden for this guy. And it was Saturday night. He's preparing his, his lesson for the next day. And then he was burdened, unbelievably burdened. I got to go. I got to go talk to, to Moody. And he's like, I got to go talk to Moody now. So he, he folded up his stuff and he had it all. Moody was working at a shoe store, I believe. And in Boston, and he, he was, then he, as he was going there, he's like, should I go in or not? If I go in, I'm going to embarrass him. And he's just in deep thought, and he passes by the shoe store because he's in such deep thought. And then he realizes, oh, I just passed it. I'm just going to go in and make, make a go for it. He goes back in. He finds Moody in the back, like stocking shoes. He, he puts his arm on his shoulder. He says, in his words, I gave a weak plea, a weak gospel plea. He wept over Moody's sins. And Moody said, I'd never wept over my own sins. Here's this man weeping over my sins. He just presented the gospel. 
And Moody said like 30 years later, he said, I can feel the power of that man's hand on my shoulder tonight. And, and then God saved him through this weak plea, but it's the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But we need to proclaim the gospel and God will, God will do the work, but we got to, I mean, it's important to us to remember, we've got to, we've got to get the gospel out there and then God will use our weak plea. And it's amazing to, to bring new life. So our responsibility is the external call. Yes. We, we, we owe it to everyone we see. We, we give them the gospel. We plead with them to believe. We can't make the inward call happen. I can't do that. I am not sovereign. But I can give the external call of the gospel to anyone and everyone, and that's our responsibility. We throw the seed wherever it will fall. Whether it falls in rocky soil, thorny soil, good soil, past soil, is, is not the point for us. We, just, we, are, we, are, we are just indiscriminate. We throw the seed everywhere of the gospel. We plead everyone with everyone to repent and believe, and then the Lord always will be faithful in his sovereignty to, to work through that and to effectively reach out to, to his own. Um, John 11, you mentioned this, Scott, when you prayed earlier about Lazarus. Um, if you'll turn there real quick, I, I got another place in John I want to go to, but first John 11, I think is illustrating uh, this so clearly. Um, you know the story of Lazarus, uh, the friend of Jesus. He was very close with Lazarus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary. Um, and, you know, Lazarus is sick. They come and tell Jesus, and Jesus is, he doesn't go immediately. Um, and Lazarus dies. He's been dead a number of days when Jesus, is, when Jesus arrives. Um, you know, they had Lazarus in a tomb. The stone wasn't in front of it. You know, dead bodies decay. It's going to be awful if you open this up. Um, but Jesus tells them to remove the stone. Um, they do. And then verse 41, he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And then what happened? Lazarus said no. <laughs> well, you made me able, Jesus, but I, 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 no, I'm, I'm resisting that. What happened? It says, the man who had died came out. And the point of what we're saying is the call to God's, to those whom God has chosen, this effectual call creates the very thing it's calling to do. It gives the ability, the desire, and the willingness. God called a dead man out of the tomb, and when, when Christ said, come out, what did Lazarus do? He came out. How do you know when God has called someone you start to see the evidence of it. You start to see they're obeying God from a willing heart. Uh, John, in, in, in John 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he's talking, I mean, the new birth is, is what we're going to talk about next time, um, but it's so related. Some of these doctrines, these teachings are so intertwined. Um, what does Jesus say? You know, how do you know when the Holy Spirit is working? It's like when the wind's blowing, you don't know where it comes from or where it's going, but you see the evidence of it. What is the evidence that God has called someone out of death to life? They start living. There's evidence of life. They want Jesus. They want the word. They want the people of God. Um, and they don't want the things they used to want. Now, not perfectly, obviously, but there's, there's such a change that it cannot be Denied. I want to go back though. Let's think more about this doctrine of the effectual call. John chapter six, we, we referenced this last week in terms of the doctrine of election, but it also again ties into um, the, the doctrine of the effectual call. And again, let scripture be scripture. Like we are in submission to the text and we need to go where the text goes. 
Whether that's something that we are comfortable with or uncomfortable with, let the text direct us. If we're going to say that Scripture is God's Word and it is authoritative, it is sufficient, it is inspired and inerrant, then let's follow it where it goes, wherever it goes, and be okay with that. Uh, Beginning in verse 35, John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Notice verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And so again, why, why is it that they don't believe? Why are they not coming to Jesus? Because the Father hasn't given them to him. Because if the Father had given those men to Jesus, what would they be doing? They'd be coming to Jesus. Okay, but let's read on. Actually, just another, another uh, note on verse 37, just to know when it talks about the father giving, um, what does that mean? He gives certain people to Jesus and everyone that he gives to Jesus, what does Jesus say he'll do? He'll never cast out. But let's move on. He says, I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so from our perspective proclaiming the gospel, what do we tell people? If you look on the Son and believe in him, you will have eternal life. Believe in the Son. Again, this doesn't exclude proclamation. It encourages it. Look at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So again, verse 44, just take it for what it says. What does Jesus say? No one literally is able to come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. So in and of ourselves, none of us have the ability to come to Jesus. That's what he's saying. You can't come to him for life. You won't come to him for life. You don't have the ability. You don't have the willingness. You don't have the desire unless the father who sent Jesus draws you to Jesus. Okay, can I jump in yes, here? So go for it. some people will argue that God draws everybody and not everybody responds. That cannot Cannot be the meaning, because look, look at the continued thought here. Let me reread 45 and 46. It is written in the prophets, oh, 44, excuse me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him, the same group, mm-hmm. up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, this is Isaiah, and they will all be taught by God. So who's the all? Everyone who has heard and learned, that's being taught by the Father, everyone who's learned from the Father comes to me. Mm-hmm. Every single one the Father calls and draws comes to him. It's a 100% success rate. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That is, everyone whom God draws comes to Christ, and he will raise them up on the last day. So I think that's significant. Yeah, well, drawing is, is essentially the same thing as calling here. Right. Um, it's essentially the same thing. Um, go on. It's in, um, skipping over a lot here, um, not getting into the eating flesh and drinking blood part. Um, yeah, verse 65, after Jesus has said all the controversial stuff, Verse 65, he says, and many have departed because of this. This is why I told you, actually, to depart after this. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So again, you can't come to Jesus for salvation unless God grants you that ability and desire to come. Um, and again, obviously, God doesn't give it to everyone or else everyone would come. Um, immediately after that, in verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. 
So there's, there's true disciples and then there's false disciples. There's in the gospel of John, there's true belief and then there's false belief. There's people who, at least on the initial surface of things, act like they believe in Jesus. But the moment things get harder, the moment Jesus says something they don't like, well, I'm, I'm not going to follow him anymore. So true faith perseveres um, in, following, in following Jesus. Now, again, context is key as well. And I want to draw your attention to this. Look at John chapter 12. Because this is often something that is done, and I want to make sure that you don't fall for this, and not just in, in a sense that I disagree with this, but this is a bad way to use the Bible. Because a lot of times what we're tempted to do with a, with a doctrine like what we're teaching is, well, it's clear John 6 says this, but doesn't it say so in another place, something that's kind of the opposite, and it's almost like Scripture cancels itself out? But understand what we're doing if we believe that. We're basically saying God contradicts himself. That's essentially what that is. Well, God will say one thing one place, but man, we can't take that too serious because God says something else over here that seems to be the exact opposite. So we kind of kind of got to mute both of them. And that's just not how it works, folks. That, that is actually misusing the Bible. Okay, let's not do that. John chapter 12, Gentiles have started, Greeks have started coming to Jesus, not just Jews now, because verses 20 to 26, it's talking about Greeks coming to seek Jesus, non-Jewish people. Okay, keep that in mind. That's the context. Not just Jews, but Greeks too. And then we get to, um, let's just start in verse 27. He says, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I've glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said, heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And it's like, ha ha, see? Jesus draws everyone, so he can't mean in John 6 what you said he means. But in context, it's not, Jesus isn't contradicting himself because it's the same guy speaking. In context, when he talks about all people, what did we just learn? Not just Jews, even Greeks are coming. So the drawing here is not, um, it, it's, it's categories of people, okay? Not just Jews, but Jews and Greeks, all people. I'm going to draw all people, not just Jews, Greeks also, okay? Let the context decide not how we want a, ver a word to be used. Context is, I, I teach this in my hermeneutics class. I know we've said it here. Context, three things about context you need to know. Context is king, number one. Number two, context is king. Number three, context is king. Let context determine how a word is being used, okay? Yes, a word can have a, a general meaning across, across usage, but in some places, a particular nuance will come out and let the context do that. Here, Jesus is talking about types of people, not every individual. Because if he's talking about every individual, then he just contradicted himself. And if Jesus contradicts himself, you can't trust him. Do we see, and, and I'm not trying to like be snarky, but that, that, is, that is the effect if we don't let context and individual parts of scripture speak. It won't conflict. Why? Because God doesn't get confused. And if God is the author of scripture, then he's not going to be confused when he gave us the Bible. It's going to be consistent because God is consistent. And so don't pit the Bible against itself on doctrines like this, okay? Don't do that. We're going to look at another a really interesting example later in 2 Timothy on a Thursday night uh, when we get to chapter, I don't think we're going to get there this week, but probably the week after on Thursday night uh, on that topic.
Yeah, no, I was just thinking about the, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. I, I was thinking about how important prayer is, which Grudem mentions in the middle of 296. He just said, this is why prayer is so important to effective evangelism. Unless God works in people's hearts to make the proclamation of the gospel effective, there will be no genuine saving response. So it just, we should be regularly, consistently praying that God would save people. And I, there's a video where D.A. Carson talks about this, and I mentioned this to the guys book club. He said, very rarely does a biography move him to tears, but he said, reading about George Whitfield by Dallimore, the two volumes, he said it moved him to, to tears because you're, you're seeing God use this, this, this servant of God, George Whitfield, and God saving all kinds of people through Whitfield. One of my favorite stories in there is when uh, he goes to the coal miners, these hardened sinners, and they're covered in like coal. Their faces are all black, and Whitfield gets up and just proclaims the gospel, and there were literally hundreds of people by the end of the sermon their faces had streams of white coming down because the tears are washing away the coal as they're being converted. And Carson said, as he read of all of these conversions, he said he was weeping. He just said, like, God, do it again. Like, do it again. Raise up a, you know, Whitfield. Wait, we need another revival. And, and people think that, you know, how bad the United States is, it, it is. But he said England was just as bad when Whitfield was raised up. So we should be pleading with God that, that he would save people. I mean, this should just be a regular part of our daily life is praying for conversions. I mean, there's nothing like genuine conversion, and then getting up there and having people baptized, like Elizabeth Protestant, every time she sees a baptism, she, she cries. I mean, it's just so powerful and moving. I mean, there's nothing like genuine conversion. We should be pleading with God that he would save people. And there's a story from a pastor named Eric Alexander who had a, a great aunt who just faithfully prayed for her sister and the kids and like the grandkids and died long before Eric Alexander was even born. And then he said he and his older brother came to Saving Faith and they heard about this woman who had prayed for her. And he just said... Uh, he said, we often wonder what part that old lady had in the invasion of grace into our family. Do you ever thank God for godly praying ancestors, mothers, fathers, grandparents? We have so, you have so much to be thankful for with that kind of lineage. You're just faithfully praying for the next generations. I mean, we should just be praying. God can save the most hardened sinners. So we should be faithful to pray for conversions. Well, that's, that's really good. Uh, turn, turn with me to Second Peter near the back of your Bible. 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read just an extended section here, but I just want to zero in on one big idea. And you, you'll even notice the word calling, how it's used at both the beginning and end of this text that we'll read. So 2 Peter 1, we'll start in verse 3. 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to his own glory and excellency, by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So just pause there. That's a long list of things we should be doing, right? More and more love, godliness, self-control. Those are the fruit and evidence of a new heart, right? A, a love, a brotherly affection, a love for the church, a love for the Lord. Those are, those are bubbling over, and they, they should be increasing as we grow as Christians. And they, it comes from knowing our sins have been forgiven. Because people who don't have those qualities have forgotten that they're forgiven. And so people who have those qualities, they're, they're, they're basking in the gospel. And then verse 10, 
Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, let let me read verse 10 again. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Do you see how calling and election go right together? Everyone God has elected to save will be called savingly by God, and everyone He calls savingly has been elected. There is no one who is called in this way who's not also elect, and there's no one who elect who's not also called this way by God. They go together. And if I'm a genuine Christian and there's a change in my life, then Peter says, stoke the furnace of those flames. Get near the gospel. Let the fire grow so that your love and godliness grows so that you can become more and more sure what? God really did call me to Christ, and He really has elected me. I'm really part of His chosen people. He really has called me. And as the life change increases, we have more and more confidence that our salvation uh, is genuine. Let me pray for us. I think we are out of time. Heavenly Father, thank You for uh, just saturating Your Bible with so much on these massive and weighty topics. Uh, Lord, for those of us who know You, Help us never, ever grow bored with the fact that we were once dead in sin and that you spoke and you called us from death to life. You made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. And God, help us to be continually amazed by this grace and help us if we are hearing about this for the first time or this is something we haven't really thought through carefully. Help us, Lord. Lead us by the hand as we search your Scriptures and come to a settled position on this and that we would be able to know a love for us that is astonishing and that we would be able to boast only in your grace that saved a wretch like me. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Next week, uh, we will be jumping into the doctrine of regeneration or the new birth, which is related but distinct from these other ones. And so, hopefully, we will see you all next Sunday.